Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our Wednesday morning Bible study as we are continuing to make our way through the epistles. Today, we are going to be looking at the short epistles of Titus and Philemon. So today, we will be doing both an overview and a walkthrough of both of these very short books. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to get your Bible and turn to the book of Titus. We'll look at Titus first, and then we will go to the book of Philemon. So when we approach the book of Titus, uh, the book of Titus, the content of the book is instructions to Titus for setting in order the churches that are in Crete, including the appointment of qualified elders and the instruction of various social groups set against the backdrop and in contrast of false teachers. Uh, this is one of the pastoral epistles, as we have seen in Timothy, as we've looked at First Timothy and Second Timothy. Now we're going to look at Titus, again, a pastoral epistle written by the Apostle Paul uh, from Macedonia, probably around 62 to 63 AD. Titus was probably written around the time of First Timothy that was written. The recipient is Titus. We don't know a whole lot about Titus. We do know that Titus is called, in verse number four, a true son of Paul in the faith. He was sometimes a traveling companion of Paul. He was a Gentile believer. And Paul has set him over the church or the several churches at Crete. So Paul, having left him over these churches, He's left them with the responsibility to set these churches in order. While Paul and Timothy would continue on to Ephesus, where they would have to address the situation at the church there at Ephesus that we saw in 1 Timothy. Paul then had to go on to Macedonia, and it's in that time that he wrote 1 Timothy, uh, addressing the problems with the false teachers that were there in 1 Timothy, and addressing Titus here for some of the very same concerns of the false teachers that Paul had at Ephesus. The emphasis in the book of Titus is God's people must be and do good, especially true of church leaders. And it's the grace of God that empowers God's people to live good lives. And this stands over against the false teachers and their false teaching. Now, looking at Titus, uh, Titus appears to be a similar yet smaller version of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy, we saw that the false teachers had a prominent place there in the writing. Um, and it's the false teaching that prompted Paul to address the issues that were there. And we said that unlike some of the other churches, the false teaching that was happening in Ephesus during the time of 1 Timothy was unlike those maybe in Galatia where there were outsiders coming in. The false teachers, if you remember, in Ephesus in 1 and 2 Timothy were those who were already leaders in the church. So Paul had the task of telling Timothy that he has to go in and rebuke uh, these elders and to bring uh, godly leadership in the place of these false elders and false teachers 
at Ephesus. Here we have the same kind of false teaching that we saw in 1st and 2nd Timothy. Um, but because that's a similarity, there's also some differences. The church at Ephesus that Paul wrote to Timothy about had been established for many years, probably 10 to 15 years had already been established. So the elders were already church leaders in place. Titus, on the other hand, has been left in Crete by Paul to set new churches in order to establish them correct the first time so it would block out any of the false teaching or any leaders that would get in to start the false teaching. Um, Paul begins this letter with qualifications of church leaders. And then he takes on the false teachers, um, followed by general instructions as he deals with older and younger men and older and younger women, as well as slaves and masters. The rest of the letter emphasizes doing good in the world on the basis of God's grace. So Paul deals with three or four major issues. He deals with setting good godly leaders in place in the church. He deals with the threat of false teachers. He deals with people in the different areas of everyday society and how they should live as Christians in the world and how the emphasis is on doing good, which was empowered by the grace of God. So while the problems with the false teachers lie much of behind what is said, we don't really get the idea that the false teachers have the most prominent place as they did in 1 Timothy. It's more of a warning against the false teachers so that it would not get to that level. Therefore, these false teachers must quickly be rebuked. Um, as far as the threats of the false teachers here in Crete, um, pretty much the same as those who were in Ephesus. They were into Jewish myths. They were into genealogies. All this was based upon the law. They loved controversies. They were deceivers. They were lovers of money. They used the law to promote um, ascetic practices or self-disciplined practices, merely human commands. Um, but the greater emphasis that Paul emphasizes here to Titus is the grace of God and the good life, the good living, the good behavior that flows from the grace of God. So a simple letter that Titus is, you know, a simple quick background, having pulling from, you know, the scene at Ephesus with 1 Timothy. Let's walk through and read um, some of the letter of Titus and take a walk through. In chapter 1 of Titus, verses 1 through 4, we find the salutation. And this letter is getting quite down to business. It doesn't waste a lot of time. It's more business than personal. So it lacks uh, a major thanksgiving or a major uh, prayer report. Um, but there is an elaboration on Paul's own apostleship. And we see this in the letters, and we'll see this contrasted in Philemon, our next letter. Sometimes when Paul has to take more of a tone of an authority in the church, he will emphasize his apostleship. When it's more of a friendly letter, you know, he won't emphasize so much the apostle aspect. Well, here in the book of Titus, we see Paul emphasizing his calling as an apostle. 
Therefore, that's really not much for Titus' sake as it is for those in the church that might would hear this letter. So Paul begins in chapter 1 of Titus. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he kind of gives the definition of that. To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which is now his appointed season. He's brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So there he emphasizes his apostleship. He emphasizes the message. He emphasizes what he's called to do. He emphasizes the light that comes through the preaching that God has entrusted unto him. So there he really puts his purpose and calling uh, out there, showing his authority uh, as apostle of this church. Then in verse number four, he addresses it to Titus, my true son, very similar to the greeting that we saw in Timothy, where he addresses Timothy as his true son in the faith. Again, showing that Paul is the apostle, you know, he's the ultimate uh, overseer of that church, um, and yet his delegated authority to the, the bishop, the pastor of the church, which in First and Second Timothy is Timothy, and here it is Titus. Then in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, we see the appointing of the elders. And this list is very similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, the appointment is in view here, not necessarily replacing ungodly leaders, but godly leaders, but go ahead and appointing in every city uh, godly leaders. And this leads us to believe that, this was, that these were new churches that Titus would uh, that he was a part of there in his house, but also that he would start in other places in the cities as the churches in that time started in homes, that in the cities that they would place elders over these local assemblies. So Paul tells Titus, I'm going to have you to set in order the government, the overseer, the leadership in these churches. So he gives the uh, qualifications here on what the uh, elders should do in the church. So some of these in verses 5 through 9, he says, The reason I left you in Crete is that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's house, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, these are very similar to what we saw in 1 Timothy. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves to do good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message and encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose the sound doctrine. So there we see the qualifications. And again, these aren't so much a job description as, you know, we talked about in 1 Timothy. It's not really what they do as their job, but it's who they are on the inside. So with Christian leadership, character truly matters. But we've seen in the church and we've seen even ministers and pastors and evangelists 
that have a great gift of maybe teaching or preaching or pastoring, and they can draw a crowd, but yet they ultimately fall, not because they can't preach or they can't teach, or, but they fall because of what's on the inside. So that's what we see happening here, that Paul is concerned with who these leaders are on the inside and these qualifications, not just duties. Then in verses 10 through 16, now we see the false teachers come in. So Paul says, I, come to, I sent you Titus to set in place these leaders, and here's their qualifications. But then he says, for there are many rebellious people. So there we kind of see um, a warning to him. Not necessarily this is happening right now, but here's something to look out for because this is definitely coming because there's going to be people coming into the church trying to, to disrupt the church and trying to lead people astray. So he says in verse number 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. That's the Jewish group. They must be silenced disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain. By one of Crete's own prophets said the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. So Paul didn't have much to say about, you know, these group of people in Crete who obviously, you know, had this reputation of not being good godly people. So he tells Titus to rebuke them sharply that they would be sound in the faith and pay no attention, he says, to Jewish myths or merely human commands. Um, for they, uh, to the pure, all things are pure. To those who are corrupted and believe not, nothing is pure. Their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit to do anything good. So there we see the sharp contrast between 5 through 9 and what the true leaders of the church should be, and then 10 through 16 of here is what these false teachers and unrighteous people are doing. Then when we come down to chapter 2, we find he begins chapter 2 with, you, however. So again, now like in 2 Timothy, he makes it more personal to Titus. So he's talked about the church leaders. He's talked about the warning to the false teachers. Now he's going to talk to Titus. But you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. That echoes 2 Timothy very well. You, however, must be teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then he's going to, here in chapter 2, give various social groups. Um, the same groups that he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, picking up uh, the servants in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He talks about older, whim, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And note that the reasons given for godly living are for the sake of those who are on the outside of the church, that others may see and know. So in chapter 2, we pick up and it says, You, however, must teach uh, appropriate sound doctrine. He says, To the older men, teach them to be temperate. Worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. 
Chapter 2, verse 4. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. So the older men and older women have a responsibility to be examples and to teach the younger men and the younger women. Uh, To be self-controlled, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 6, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, to be an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, Titus, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned by those who oppose you, that they may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. He says, so live your life in such a way where those, even those who oppose you, they don't have anything bad to say about you. And then in verse number nine, he says, to teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not talk back, not to steal from them, to show they can be fully trusted and that in every way they will make teaching about God, about the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So the underlying theme behind all of this is the way we conduct our lives as Christians is a living sermon in itself to those who we are around and who are watching us. And then the basis of this, the basis of godly living is God's grace. For Paul has already talked about how mere human commands and following human traditions and us trying to do good in our own self-righteousness gets us nowhere. But as Christians, we are called to live good godly lives. So how do we live good godly lives? We do it by being empowered by the grace of God. Since God has poured His grace out upon us through Jesus Christ and has changed our hearts and our minds are being renewed with the Word of God, it changes our lives. It's not something we get up with a checklist of do's and don'ts every day. Okay, I need to do this, don't do this. I I don't need to lie today. I don't need to cheat on my spouse today. I don't need to steal anything today. No, the grace of God changes us from the inside so that we don't need a list of do's and don'ts or even a list of commands. We have a changed heart by the grace of God. So here in verses 11 through 15, we see the basis for godly living. For the grace of God, verse 11 says, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So a lot of people say, when you emphasize God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's mercy, a charge is, well, you're giving people a license to sin. You're telling people, hey, you can do whatever you want to and be forgiven because you're under grace and not under law. Well, the people that say that don't, do not understand grace at all. Grace, yes, offers forgiveness. It's divine favor. It offers mercy. It takes away punishment and judgment. It frees us. It makes us just like Jesus. But it does this not in order that we would go out and sin, but in order that we are empowered to live the life that God has called us to be. And a true revelation of the grace of God does not make us run away from God into sin. It makes us run away from sin and to God. So here we see the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. Why? Because it's freed us from ungodliness. 
and to live godly lives. Why? Because grace declares that we are righteous and it empowers us with the Holy Spirit of God to live righteously. It talks about Jesus in verse number 14. It says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. So grace leads us to do what is good. So he tells Titus in verse 15, These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now as we go into chapter 3 of Titus, as in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, doing good is pointed outward. How to live in a godly manner for the sake of the ungodly world. Because we were once ourselves ungodly. We were once ourselves out in the world. And the basis of our salvation was the goodness and the grace of God and other people, other Christians who were an example unto us of how to live. And the life behind grace that does good has at its very foundation love. That's the very foundation of the Christian life. It is love. And that is our motivation. In chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to Titus and says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no more, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. That is our lives pointed outward. You know, and even during this time that we are living in, if you're, you know, watching in 2020, we're dealing with the, you know, coronavirus pandemic and the government is putting out regulations and people are having to social distance, but yet still trying to, to live our lives. And these are good practical advice even for these days. That in difficult times, when we're all challenged to not be rude to one another, to not slander everybody, not slander all of those in leadership, and, and to be peaceable and considerate, you know, when we're standing in line at the store, you know, to, to be consider others around us, to do whatever we need to do that is good in these days. So verses 1 through 2 of chapter 3 are very, are very practical even to our day. Verse 3 says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and ensnared or enslaved by all kinds of passion and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, hatred, and hating one another. That's our old life. He says, But when the kindness, verse number 4, and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit who He poured out upon us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So being justified by His grace, we would become heirs and have hope of eternal life. He says, this is who we were. 
disobedient, unkind, and because of the grace of God and salvation and His mercy, this is who we now are to be. Good in the world that others may see. He says in in verse number 8, I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to do what is good. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. So you can see how he's encouraging Titus to encourage and to teach his own people, probably young Gentiles in the faith, leaders who he's going to be appointing, why this is so important for a young church to learn the grace of God. But now that you've had this experience with the grace of God, this is how we are to live, to be an example to others. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, he gives uh, one more final indictment against the false teachers and their ways. He says in verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. These are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. Uh, You may be sure that such people are warped, sinful, and are self-condemned. So one final warning he gives about the false teachers. And then he gives some final and concluding remarks, some personal words to Titus about others' comings and, and goings. Um, Paul hits the main theme of doing what is good one final time in verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and to not live unproductive lives. So you can see how Titus is a little Timothy. It's a little Timothy book, a little Timothy letter, uh, because it has some of the same themes, even though it's a little bit of a different setting that it has. But certainly it can speak to us as far as, you know, the leadership that should be in, in our churches. It speaks to us as how we should live our lives as individuals, as young men, whether you're a young man, young woman, older man, older woman, uh, no matter where you are in life, it has individuals. And then us collectively as the church, how we are to live as examples to the world as those who have been changed by the grace of God and now live good lives. So Titus is our little Timothy letter. Now we're going to go to the next letter in our Bible, and that is Philemon. Philemon is only 25 verses long. There's only one chapter in Philemon. Uh, So our, our introduction to Philemon, the sole purpose of the letter, this is a very personal letter. This has nothing to do with, you know, with a a church. It has to do with an individual, even though the church would know about this situation with Philemon. The sole purpose of this letter of Philemon is to secure forgiveness for a probably runaway slave named Onesimus. So Onesimus was a slave of this man Philemon. Philemon was someone who was converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, And also, Onesimus comes to be converted under Paul's ministry. But Onesimus has run away from Philemon, possibly could have even stolen from him and run away. 
But yet as Onesimus, the runaway slave, encounters Paul, he becomes a Christian. He converts and he wants to make his rights, his wrongs righted. So Paul is writing to Philemon to plead on behalf of Onesimus, this slave. Um, it was probably written around 60 to 61. Philemon is a Gentile believer in Colossae. Uh, in fact, Onesimus is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 9. Uh, a Gentile believer in Colossae in whose house a church meets. So there's a church that meets in the house of Philemon. So that's why they will be aware of this situation. Uh, the salutation and final greeting indicates that Paul expects Philemon to share the letter with the church as far as what's going on in his situation. And the occasion, as we mentioned, Onesimus has recently been converted. The runaway slave has recently been converted and has been serving Paul, who is now in prison. Now Onesimus is being sent back to Philemon, accompanied with Tychius, who is also carrying letters to the churches in Colossae, Colossians, and Asia Ephesus, or the book, or letter to the church at Ephesus. The emphasis here in the letter to Philemon is the gospel reconciles people to one another. The gospel reconciles people and changes our relationship with people. Not only Jew and Gentile, Paul and Philemon, but also slave and master, Onesimus and Philemon. The gospel reconciles people by making them all brothers in Christ. So even though, though Paul was a Jew and Philemon was a Gentile, Christ brought them together. Now even though Onesimus was a slave, Philemon was a master, now they are brought together as brothers in Christ. Uh, our overview of Philemon, this is the shortest of Paul's letters. Uh, a very delicate letter to write. And you'll notice the different tone that Paul takes. And he even points out, I'm taking a delicate tone with you, Philemon. Paul is asking forgiveness uh, for Onesimus' uh, crime, possible crime. Um, Paul puts all of this, all this whole situation into the perspective of the gospel. That shows us the gospel impacts every area of our lives. The gospel impacts every area. The gospel impacts our relationships. The gospel impacts how we see one another. The gospel impacts how we relate to one another. How we view one another. Not as these titles that the world likes to give each other. But the spirit behind whatever labels and titles the world labels us. So he begins with prayer and thanksgiving. He praises God for the way the gospel has already been at work in Philemon's life. Paul refuses to lean on his apostolic authority. He puts his apostolic authority aside, unlike what we just saw in Titus. He reminds Philemon that he is one of Paul's converts, and he regards Philemon as a partner in the gospel. Verses 12 through 16 are, is the main heart of the letter. Onesimus has been in service to Philemon and has run away. And now 
has been converted and has been helping Paul out in his difficult situation of being in prison. But now Onesimus is returning to Philemon. So in the natural world, you would think that someone that had a slave that possibly stole from them and ran away, if they were to come back, that probably meant their very own life was in jeopardy. But here we find that Paul is appealing on the basis of love. And Onesimus returning as a repentant slave, Paul is mending the relationship, not as slave and master, but as brother and brother in Christ. Which leads me to say just a little bit about the issue of slavery in the Bible. Now, certainly we can't exhaust this topic, but the first thing that you will hear from critics of the Bible and critics of Christianity is, well, the Bible endorses slavery. That's one of the main critiques that you will hear from non-Christians and critics of the Bible. And that's a subject that has to be dealt with. And I think we deal with it in the fact that the Bible was given to us. It wasn't a neatly wrapped, it wasn't a neatly wrapped book from God that he just dropped out of the sky one day. Uh, the Bible was dealt in a certain time in history with certain historical particulars, with certain societal norms. And it tells of what happened during that day. So slavery, especially in the first century Greco-Roman culture, um, was an accepted part of the culture. Now, just because something has previously been accepted doesn't make it moral or right. So just because it was accepted doesn't mean we overlook it and call it okay. You know, in our, in our society, in our Western society in America, especially with the history of slavery in, in our own nation, we see uh, just how ugly slavery is. And we deem dignity upon every single person that people are not property. So just because something happened in the past and it was accepted by the culture of that day does not make it right. Just as there are things in our world today that are accepted by the culture, but that does not make it right. But because the Bible was written in, in these times and in these situations, and slavery was very common for the you know, overwhelming majority of human history and even today in other parts of the world, it's something that you have to Address, But we'll also see that even though Paul addresses the issue of slaves and masters, even as we saw in Titus, we're going to see the difference. And we've already talked a little bit about it. But we'll see the difference that Paul puts upon it because now slavery has been affected by the gospel. So um, no one's, you know, in the Roman times here would have even envisioned a society um, operating without the institution of slavery in it. Uh, the fact that slavery was, slavery was never debated in the world. Um, now, the treatment of slaves, how you treated slaves, that was debated in the world, but slavery was just an absolute given. Um, unlike what we've seen in North American and American history and European history, um, slavery in these times in the Roman culture was not based upon a certain race. You know, anybody could have been a slave. It was more economic. 
Um, if you were poor, um, you probably ended up being a servant or a slave or a hired laborer of those who uh, were rich or those who had more money. Some people willingly sold themselves into slavery uh, to escape destitution and even death in many cases. At least if they were a slave, they would have a place to live and they would have some food, whereas death may be their other option in the, ancients, in the ancient world. Others were born into slavery. Uh, in major urban centers, up to one-third of the population uh, were slaves, just like, you know, slaves ran a lot of the society that drove the economies. Just like, you know, we have laborers in the workforces. Well, most of that was just in the context of, of slavery. And household slaves like Onesimus were at the bottom of the society, of society's ladder, having no rights and no right of refusal under Roman's law. Master could treat them any way that they wanted to. That was slavery in the world. Now, as far as Paul's view of slavery, we've seen Paul mention the relationship between slaves and masters in several of his letters. And the fact is there were slaves and servants that were serving masters. So Paul is speaking into what was happening at that day. He wasn't necessarily endorsing slavery, but he was talking to Christians who were slaves. Slaves who had become Christians. And he's telling them to do right. He's telling them to be an example, even when they were slaves. To obey, even under you know, the hard conditions that they were in, to obey their masters. He says, for, for that is what they were to do. And he tells them as to do as unto the Lord. Not as unto that person, but do as unto the Lord. So we saw this in Titus. We just saw it where he encourages slaves, you know, to be obedient to their masters. But with the underlying effect is that they would be impacting their masters for the cause of Christ, and they would give testimony to the word of God. But also, also on the other hand, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.21 he encourages slaves to seek freedom if they could get it. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul lists slave traders as being among those people who display immoral behavior. So Paul puts slave traders in the category of the sexually immoral and drunkards and murderers and liars and evil people. So we get a glimpse of Paul's view there of slavery as well. And then, and probably most importantly, Paul does something by placing value upon the slaves that nobody else placed among the slaves. As they were seen as less than, as slaves were seen as those at the bottom of, of society and economic status and standing and stature, Paul places extreme value upon those who were slaves, putting them on equal footing as everybody else. And that's what the gospel does. Male, female, bond, free, Jew, Gentile. 
Those labels don't matter in the economy of grace and in the kingdom of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all one in Jesus Christ. So Paul says things that as in Christ Jesus, there is neither slave nor free, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, we are all baptized into one body, whether we are slave or free. We've been given the same spirit. So Paul places the value of absolute righteousness of Christ and equality in standing and dignity and value to the slave as he does to the free. As Paul cultivates a culture of equality and mutual respect where the world produces degrading and humiliation on, on slaves, that view is eclipsed by Christian identity. So Paul is urging Philemon to accept Onesimus, but not as a slave, to accept him as a brother in Christ. And that would radically alter the relationship that they had to one of kinship and brotherhood. So Onesimus, on his way back, carrying this letter. Apparently, it possibly stolen from Philemon because Paul said, if he owes you anything, I will pay it back, put it on my account. Onesimus has become repentant when he got together with Paul and, and accepted Christ. And now he's back with this letter, with Philemon in the midst of their house church. So, Philemon had probably already read this letter first, and the reading it to the church was the public expression of Philemon's acceptance of the letter. So imagine what the church felt, what a testimony it was to the gospel when the church is hearing this. So the question is, Paul is you know, begging Philemon to receive Onesimus. Did the letter work? Well, obviously it did. Because if the letter didn't work, it probably would have been thrown away. But yet it's preserved. So it shows us that Philemon more than likely received Onesimus back and received him as a brother in Christ. Interestingly to note, it is very possible, although we don't know for certain, but it's very possible that Onesimus, a former runaway slave, eventually became the overseer, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Imagine what kind of testimony that could have been. For one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, on his way to Rome, wrote to the church at Ephesus. It says, In God's name, therefore, I receive your large congregation in the person of Onesimus your bishop in this world, a man whose love is beyond words. So we don't know for certain that that's the same Onesimus, even though Christian tradition believed it to be so. But think about this. Onesimus, possibly stolen from his master Philemon, had stolen from him, had ran away, encountered Paul, became a Christian, went back to Philemon, 
to repair their relationship. Philemon could have rejected him, could have sent him away, could have killed him. And that would have been the end of Onesimus. But just imagine if Christian tradition is true, how Philemon forgave Onesimus, how he loved him and accepted him as a brother. Had and encouraged him faith, his faith, and Onesimus eventually became a bishop of the church of Ephesus. All because of the power of forgiveness and the power of ultimate respect and valuing one another. Not by titles or labels, but by the gospel. What a powerful story that would be. So let's look very quickly um, at the walkthrough. We have the first three verses here. We have the introduction. Paul does not address uh, or does not label himself as an apostle. He says, Paul, a prisoner. For Paul is in chains here at this time. Paul, a prisoner. To Philemon, my dear friend and fellow worker. And also addresses um, Aphia and Archippus. To, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you. In verses 4 through 7, we have the thanksgiving and prayer. Notice Paul says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I pray your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. So he's encouraging Philemon. He says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed our hearts and the hearts of the Lord's people. So there we see the thanksgiving and prayer. So Paul really thinks something of Philemon. And then we have the appeal, verses 8 through 21. He says, Therefore, Although, notice what Paul says in verse 8, in Christ I could be bold and I could order you to do what you ought to do. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul says, I'm not going to flaunt my authority as an apostle over your house church. He says, I'm coming to you on the basis of love, not as an apostle, but as a brother as a fellow laborer with you. He said, it is no other than Paul, an old man and a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's how he labels himself, an old man and a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So there's the occasion. I appeal to you on behalf of of Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both me and you. He says in verse 12, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me, for he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains, but I do not want to do anything without your consent. So that any favor you would do would not be forced, but be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. So that now you would see him differently. Not as a slave, as a brother. Verse 16, just what I said. No longer as a slave, 
but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man, again, value, respect. That's what the gospel does. It changes. When the world says you're a slave and you're less than, Christ says, my fellow man and brother. Both as a fellow man and brother in the Lord. He says in verse 17, he appeals to, Onesim, or appeals to Philemon, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, it's inferred, if he has done any wrong to you or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. I'm not having a secretary write this. I'm writing this, and I will pay you back for anything he has stolen from you. And then Paul goes on to mention, not to mention that you owe me your very self, because it was through Paul's ministry that Philemon became a believer. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord, some favor. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience that you will accept Onesimus, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And then he says, verse 23 to 25, some personal words, and one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayer. And uh, Epaphras sends greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. So this semi-private letter is in our Bibles because the truth of the gospel lies not only in its history and the theological interpretation of that history, but also in personal relationships. Also, God's story, as it notes, God's story has been told a million times over in stories like this one. The gospel is not a theology book. It's not to be kept as theological ideas. The gospel is to be lived out in everyday life. And where the gospel forgives us, we are to forgive one another. Where the gospel now sees us no longer as sinners, but as saints, no longer as unrighteous, but as righteous, now we see others in the same light of the gospel. Where the gospel accepts us, we accept one another. We value one another. Where the gospel reconciles us to God, we are reconciled one to another in our relationships. So here we have in Philemon, the gospel lived out in a relationship between none other than a slave and master to show how the gospel changes our relationships and changes our view of one another and makes us one as brothers and sisters in Christ to value one another, to not see each other in the old ways anymore, but to live in the newness of life. So while these two books are very short, while these two letters are very short, they speak volumes. So I pray that when you read these, that you will continue to be blessed and see the gospel as we see one another and as Titus teaches us how we are to live as God's light, by God's grace in this world, that others may know Jesus. God bless you.